0: Learn all about investing in real estate in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, with a combination of real estate financial planning and modeling with numbers specific to Philadelphia, plus syndicated, more generalized recordings of live and pre-recorded real estate investing classes, not all of them specific to Philadelphia. Be sure to stay tuned after the podcast for a message from our sponsors. Well, good morning and welcome everyone. I am James Orr, and we've got a really special class today. So, today is improving cash flow when searching for your next rental property. And I'm going to jump right into it. This is kind of a, one of our mini topics. It's it's one piece of the overall plan we have to improve rental property cash flow or cash now, depending on kind of how you're looking at it. But this one is really this first section here when you're searching for the property. There's different classes we're going to do on when you're financing a property, different classes we're going to do when you're trying to optimize which strategy to use, different strategies, uh, different um, cash flow improvement strategies we have when you're trying to improve your property itself different ones you use when you're utilizing marketing in order to get your tenant or tenant buyer in the property, different things we do when we own a property and different things we do while we're renting the property. But today, today we're going to focus on searching for the property. So let's jump right into it. These are the areas that we're going to cover today. We're going to talk a little bit about uh, selecting the right real estate agent. And it's probably not what you think it is, but... um, We'll talk about that. And then we'll talk about locking or floating your mortgage interest rate. We'll talk about searching for less expensive properties, searching for pretty properties, which is counterintuitive, I think, to a lot of folks, and then searching for properties where the seller is off for selling seller concessions, and I'll go through some math on that for you, and then we're going to talk about searching for all the different creative financing strategies, like owner financing or wrap financing or subject to or assumable loans or installment land contracts or seller financing, so we're not going to like teach an entire class on all those different types of creative financing, but I'm going to mention to you some of the benefits of basically searching out those creative financing strategy. So remember, the focus here is we're thinking about you as buying a rental property in the next 90 days, one that's going to move you toward being financially independent, even though prices may be really high, interest rates may be really high, and rents may be lagging. And so how can we do that to make it more profitable for you, safer, easier, with less risk, So we're going to really look at those things now. So let's talk about agent selection. I think a lot of folks when I say agent selection are thinking to themselves, you know, maybe my real estate agent will help me buy the right property. And I think there's a part of that that's true. So you could go find an agent that's going to help you find a property that has a better ratio of rent to price, or a property that's going to have better rent appreciation, which overall is going to give you better cash flow in the long term, or one that's going to be in a part of town that's likely to appreciate a little bit better than another, or one that's going to help you avoid some costs, or help you negotiate better and get a better price. I think all of those things are true. But one thing that I do want to focus in on is this idea that in some real estate markets, there are some real estate agents, and it's not everyone, but there are some real estate agents who will voluntarily rebate part of their commission back to you at closing. So imagine for a minute that you're going to go buy a $500,000 property and the real estate agent is going to be paid by the seller in a lot of cases, but not always, but a lot of cases they're gonna be paid you know, somewhere between 1.5, 2%, 3%, 3.5%, 4%. It's all negotiated, but in a lot of cases, they're gonna get somewhere in that 3%-ish range uh, in order for helping you buy the property. And they're usually paid by the seller's real estate broker via the real estate seller. So if you think about it that way. But in some markets, the real estate agent who is helping you buy is willing to say to you, hey, look, I'm willing to pay you a rebate when i of my commission that i'm earning on helping you buy the property. So they may go in there and they may earn, you know, 3% of a $500,000 property, $15,000, and in exchange they're going to give you back 1% of the purchase price or in this case $5,000 to you at closing. So once you close on the property, they're going to get 15,000, they're going to take part of their 15,000 and give $5,000 back to you. And this is all negotiated, right? Like some real estate agents will offer this up front, it's kind of like their program some real estate agents, you can negotiate getting a rebate back of their fee. And so it's just something to think about. So what I want to talk to you about is why this might be in a, in a cash flow improvement. At first, you might think, well, I'm just getting you know part of my down payment back. Well, sort of, right? And I, and I think that's true. You are getting part of your down payment back, part of the money that you had to come up with in order to buy the deal. But if you think about it in terms of how it improves cash flow, you might think about it this way. So it's almost like if you got $5,000 back on a $500,000 purchase, it's almost like getting $400 more per month back for a year, plus a little bit more. I mean, $400 per month for a year would be $4,800, and you got you know $200 extra. So it's really like getting $400 more back. And then at the end of the year, maybe rents have gone up a little bit, and you're not you know, if, if you were $400 a month negative, then maybe rents go up a little bit and now you're not quite as negative after that. So you could look at this as offsetting some of your negative cash flow if you've got negative cash flow in your property. Ideally, we're trying to get you to the point where we can improve it all these different ways where you have very little or no negative cash flow or significantly positive cash flow, depending on your market conditions and where you are and what you're putting down and what your strategy is and how you're doing all this stuff, because a lot of it's variable. But ideally, if you were buying a property and let's say hypothetically it had four hundred dollars negative cash flow, but you're able to get this five thousand dollar rebate back from your real estate agent, then for the first year you're kind of break even, and then after that maybe rents have gone up, maybe they you know maybe you're renting a. You know, $2,000 a month property or $3,000 a month property, and maybe rents go up by, I don't know, you know, 5%. I mean, I think that's probably a pretty aggressive growth rate, although we've seen more than that recently. But I think over a long period of time, that 5% per year is pretty aggressive. But if you got 5% on, you know, a $2,000 a month property, if I'm not mistaken, that's $100 a month. Now your cash flow is not $400 a month negative, it's only $300. And, and if you're on a $3,000 property, you know, 5% improvement in cash flow, if I, I'm doing my math raise $150, now you're not negative 400, you're negative, you know, 250. So this could help get you over that first year of offsetting some pretty significant negative cash flow. Or if you have positive cash flow, it's a way to improve cash flow for the first year, if you think about it that way. Or... A totally different way of looking at this, which I think is the one that most people are not uh, finally attuned to, is you could take that five thousand dollars, and instead of applying it directly to offset uh, any negative cash flow or you know improving cash flow in that first year, you could say I'm going to take that five thousand dollars, and I'm going to use it to buy down the interest rate to improve cash flow on the loan I'm getting. Now, you may need the $5,000 upfront to kind of pay this to the lender when you go to closing, but you're getting it right back after you close as a rebate from the real estate agent in this example. So you may put up $5,000, buy down your mortgage interest rate, knowing that after closing, you're going to get $5,000 from your real estate agent, which could help offset the money you had to put up to do that. So how much improved cash flow will buying down the rate for $5,000, how much will that improve cash flow? Let's take a look. So uh, this is a um, sheet that one of the lenders i worked with locally here, um, his name is Matt Weaver with Excel Financial, but he just sends over a sheet showing you kind of what rates are. And this happens to be the rates that he sent over like uh, earlier last week. And so I just pulled it up. It happens to be for a $500,000 property for a well-qualified buyer. I believe they're putting 5% down. So this one shows you, not going to go into all the detail. I probably should do a whole class on like how to analyze these. In fact, I think it's on the schedule for doing financing. So this one though shows you basically how much you had to pay in order to get an improved rate. So this shows you what your interest rate is. So if you decide, hey, look, I want to get the rates from my lender um, by not putting in any extra money. Like you could go and go to lender and say, look... You know what my rate today if I don't pay you any extra points or extra fees? And they'll say to you, Well, it's somewhere between 6.75 and 6.875 is what the rates were at this particular recording. And they vary all the time. And the, the amount you pay to buy down these things vary all the time. I should mention that too. But right now, if you take 6.875, you're going to get a small six hundred and eighteen dollar credit at closing from your lender. Okay. So you'll get a credit. If you decide to pay $741, you could get 6.75. But what's interesting is if you choose to pay, you know, a little bit more than um, you know four thousand dollars in change. Basically, it's this three three thousand eight hundred sixty seven plus this six hundred eighteen. You can go from having a a payment of so whatever that is four thousand dollars. It's less than the five thousand dollars you're getting as a rebate. You could go from having a payment of three thousand one hundred twenty dollars to a payment of three thousand two dollars. So in exchange for paying, you know, just over I don't know, $4,400 or so, I'm really estimating. So paying about $4,400 to the lender, you can buy down your mortgage interest rate to 6.5%. So going from 6.875 to 6.5% is an improvement of $118 a month. The difference between $3,120 per month and $3,002 per month. So by going and doing that, you can improve your cash flow by $120 a month. It's not $400 a month for the first year, it's $118 a month for 30 years. Now, that might be an interesting way to improve cash flow because if you plan on holding this property forever, you're not buying it with the intention of selling it to then pay off properties or do whatever you need to do there. You're basically buying this property because you know that it's going to be in your portfolio as a long term buy and hold where you intend to pay the property off over time. Then maybe buying down the interest rate isn't the worst thing in the world and it could improve your cash flow by $118 in this example. Okay. So that is one way that choosing a real estate agent could have an improved impact on your positive cash flow. Okay, next strategy, locking or floating the rate. So mortgage rates change every day throughout the day. I would say most lenders tend to do a once a day adjustment. So, you know, they reset their rates from their lenders at you know eight o'clock in the morning every day. And those are the rates that they're allowed to go and tell people throughout the day. So if you go to a, a local credit union or something like that, you know, they, they may update their rates at eight o'clock in the morning. And if you call anytime throughout that day, they're going to quote you that rate. But the rates are really changing any all the time throughout that day. And the next day, when you wake up, they're going to be eight o'clock in the morning. And they're going to change the rates to whatever the current rate is for that day. So if you think about it, while you're shopping for a property, What if you're concerned that mortgage interest rates are going to go up? Well, it's really difficult to accurately predict the future. I mean, we really don't know if interest rates are going to go up or interest rates are going to go down. You know, we can sort of guess based on, you know, what's happening in the political world, but, you know, unexpected things happen all the time. And those can impact mortgage interest rates. But if you're concerned that rates will go up, you're like, look, you know, I can afford this right now, but if rates go up too much more, it's not going to be worth buying. Maybe what you want to do is go talk to your lender, and with some lenders, you can choose to pay a fee to lock in your rate while searching for properties. You can say, look, I know I'm buying something in the next 90 days. If I go pay you a fee, then we can lock in this mortgage interest rate, and I will be able to get this rate definitely anytime within the next 90 days in order to close on my property. And they will a lot of times do that for you. Okay. Now the lock lasts for a predetermined period of time. It's not like you could lock in a rate and then 10 years later you decide you want to use that rate, you could do it. It's usually for like 90 days. And if and I'm not a lender, but my understanding is how lenders are using this is they're going in and they are pre-purchasing that block of financing for you. So they're saying, look, we reserve this rate at this style of thing and it costs them a little bit of money to do that. Then if rates go up between when you lock your rate and when you close on the property, you're not penalized with the higher rate and have improved cash flow. So this is thinking about you know how we're improving cash flow by doing this. So you do that. If rates go down though, like let's say you lock in a rate and then rates happen to get better while you're under contract, some lenders will allow you to take advantage of some of the drop, not usually all of it. So if rates drop by half a point while you're under contract, they may only give you half of that. Okay, so talk to your lender and understand the details of this when you're going to do it. Now where this becomes especially helpful is when you're buying new construction properties where it could take months and months and months between going under contract to buy the property and when you actually close on it. So imagine you go under contract and the builder tells you, okay, this is going to be a nine month build time. The property will be ready nine months from now. Well, what can happen to interest rates between when you go under contract and you think, you know what the monthly payment is going to be. And nine months later, when you're closing on the property and they're delivering it to you and rates are very, very different between then. So this is, Locking the interest rate can help eliminate some of that interest rate for you. Now, you're going to want to talk to your lender because sometimes locking for a very long period of time is more expensive than what you perceive the risk to be. Now, if rates really jump up, it could have been a really good value play for you to go buy that. But a lot of times we don't know. And so you want to talk to your lender and say, what's the cost of me locking the rate for 90 days or six months or whatever you're going to do? And try to work out a plan to see what seems like a good value for you to do that? Let me take a beverage drink here. Okay. So, and this one seems obvious, right? The strategy of looking for less expensive properties. In theory, you think a searching for and buying a less expensive property often means that the monthly payment and the taxes and the insurance on that property tends to be a little bit lower. So if you're able to get similar rent, for a lower-priced property, that can improve cash flow. And I agree with that. As a really, really rough rule of thumb, for every $10,000 less of an expensive property that you buy, it saves you about $50 per month less in mortgage payments. So if you've done, you know, if downloaded the world's greatest real estate deal analysis spreadsheet and you've analyzed a few deals and you kind of have a feeling for, you know, if I buy this, whatever it is, $400,000, $500,000, $200,000, dollars property in my marketplace, and if I get this rent, I'm going to have $100 a month positive cash flow or negative $200 a month positive cash flow. You could think to yourself, okay, well, I know what a deal is at $500,000 as an example, and I get $2,000 a month rent. If I go buy a... property, well, that's going to be about $50 better cash flow. Really, really rough math, okay? And so let's talk about where that comes from. So this is based on um, when I was, I'll tell you the story first. When I was a kid, my father was a real estate agent. And my father told me the really rough rule of thumb was uh, when you finance a property, at the time this was true, uh, $7, the rule of thumb was for every $1,000 that you borrow, it was $7 per month in payment. And so my father would be out, you know, talking to a client and you know they'd be like, "Hey, you know, how much is the monthly payment going to be on this?" And so my father could, you know, relatively quickly in his head take the mu- take the amount that they're paying, divide by a 1000 and then multiply by 7 in order to get a really rough estimate of what their monthly payment would be. And this is just principal and interest, okay? And that rule applied when interest rates were in the 7.5 to 7.625% range, okay? A little bit higher than where they are now. Now, when I was doing real estate brokerage, I'd often give clients a really rough $50 per $10,000 of purchase price, rule of thumb, based on that 30-year fixed rate loan. And so that's the rule that you're getting here. And that's relatively fairly accurate between 4% interest rates and 6% mortgage interest rates for doing some really rough estimating. It's not exact. It's not like, hey, you know, lender, uh, James told me that if I go and I buy a $10,000 less purchase price property, then my payment's going to be $50 better. No, they actually do the math and they calculate it out. They don't use this rule of thumb. But if you're out shopping for a property, this is pretty helpful, right? You could say, look, this is about the same as this deal I was looking at before. I know what the cash flow was on that. This property is twenty thousand dollars less. Therefore, it's going to be about a hundred dollars more in positive cash flow. Really rough real thumb. Now, this is just principal and interest, doesn't take into account taxes or insurance or maintenance or anything like that in there. It's just the principal and interest part of the loan. And it's a 30-year loan. And we're assuming that interest rate is somewhere in that four to six percent range. So, you know, you're probably gonna be a little on the higher range right now if you're in that six plus percent interest rate. So it can also be in use, uh, used to estimate how much that cash flow changes. So I kind of mentioned that. So if you're wondering like where this comes from, here is the actual chart showing you how much a uh, monthly payment is on a $10,000 uh, loan, 30 year loan at $10,000. So it shows you, you know, if you were getting a 2.5% mortgage interest rate, it'd be about $40 a month, you know, where it gets about 50. Uh, at 4.375, it's about $50 exactly. At about, oh, whatever this is, almost 6%, it's about $60 per 10,000. Exactly. And you can see it goes all the way up here. Like I did all the way up to 10% mortgage interest rate. And at a 10% rate, it's, you know, high $80 for doing that. So you can get a rough idea of like what those numbers are if you want to look at them. Okay. Let's talk about seller concessions. So seller concessions is when the seller agrees to contribute some money towards your closing costs. A lot of people think of this as, This would reduce how much money I need to bring to closing because it helps cover, you know, things like closing costs or my share of title insurance or, you know, my share of the loan costs or whatever it is. So you could think of it that way. But you can also think of it as a way to reduce your mortgage interest rate. Remember we talked before about getting a rebate from the real estate agent and being able to buy down the interest rate? Well, you can use seller concessions. In order to buy down the mortgage interest rate in order to improve cash flow. So let's say you're prepared, you've got enough money to do your down payment, you've got enough money for all your closing costs. And now you're thinking, okay, I really want to improve cash flow. One way to improve cash flow is to say, I want to look at properties where the seller is offering some type of seller concession, which will allow me to use the money they're giving me to buy down the interest rate by whatever amount that was. So if you remember from the real estate agent rebate example, we talked about a $5,000. Um, kind of like buy down, a rebate would allow you to buy down the mortgage interest rate such that your improved cash flow by $118 per month for the entire 30 year period. So, if you're able to get a seller to contribute $5,000 toward your closing costs, you can improve your cash flow by $118 by taking that money and buying down the interest rate with it. So, maybe you want to search for properties where the seller is offering seller concessions. And we haven't talked about it because we're not talking about making the offer yet, but this can also apply to when you're making an offer. Remember when you're making an offer, maybe you talk to your real estate agent, and you say, look, you know, I'd really like to be able to try to negotiate to get some seller concessions in here and get the seller to contribute some money that you could then use either to offset some of your closing costs and or take some of that money and buy down the interest rate, okay? All right, let's talk about pretty properties, kind of building on this theme. So I'm gonna kind of walk you through an example here um, that may be counterintuitive, right? Because I think a lot of real estate investors, they think that, You know, buying a property that needs a little work and capturing a little sweat equity is is a better deal. For example, let's say you can go find a property that needs $10,000 in work, but you can buy it for a $30,000 discount. So if you think about it, you're going to go in there and you're going to find a property. It's kind of rough, needs a little bit of fix up, needs some kind of attention to stuff. But for $10,000 out of pocket, plus maybe some of your sweat labor, you know, kind of your effort doing it, you know, maybe $10,000 in hard cash and materials and goods and stuff like that, you could buy this property, you're buying it at a $30,000 discount, such that if you put in the $10,000 worth of work, you've captured using sweat equity, I use captured in kind of quotes there, but you captured $20,000 in equity. You basically got $20,000 in equity by doing this work yourself and paying the $10,000 in like materials and goods and do that. So if you were going to buy a property that way, and if you were going to sell the property or eventually do some type of cash out refinance where you could take advantage of that equity that you captured, ultimately, that could be advantageous to you. I will totally admit that. However, what if you have zero intention of ever selling that property? And you have no intention of actually doing a cash out refinance on that. What if you're buying this property because this is going to be one of the assets you plan to have in your portfolio long-term as a cash-flowing asset that is going to help you achieve financial independence? Well, if you're thinking about it that way, does it really matter that much that you capture 20K in equity? Well, maybe. I mean, buying a property at a $30,000 discount, it does improve cash flow, right? Because you're you're basically borrowing less. So a $30,000 discount means that you're likely saving about $150 to $200 per month in cash flow. How, how do we figure that out? Well, it's that rule that we just talked about, right? It's this little chart that we showed, you know, how much you save on a $10,000 payment. Well, if you're making, if you're buying a property for $30,000 less, it's three $10,000 groups. And we estimated, you know, at this 6.5, Two five percent interest rate, it's about sixty something dollars, so you know, low sixty dollars a month. So times three because we got three of these, and that's about one hundred and eighty dollars, maybe one hundred ninety dollars a month. So I'm estimating here that it's in that one hundred and fifty to two hundred dollars per month cash flow range, and it depends on the interest rate what it's going to be. Okay, because we're borrowing less. Okay, that's how we got that number. But what if instead of doing that? You know, Because $150 to $200 a month isn't bad. But what if instead of doing that and finding a property that needs work and having that extra $10,000 that we have to have on the hand in order to do the work and then doing all the labor ourselves and kind of putting in all effort, what if instead of doing all that work, we said, look, I'm just going to find a pretty house that doesn't need any work. And I'm not going to worry about getting a discount. I'm just going to buy a house that looks nice, is ready to go, it's rent ready, or I'm ready to move in and live there for years and no matter whatever we're doing there. And I use that $10,000 that you know someone else might use to do the work and capture $20,000 in equity and I'm going to take that $10,000 and instead of doing work I'm going to buy a pretty house and I'm going to use that money to improve my interest rate to buy down my interest rate instead what does that do for cash flow well that's interesting so using that same chart I got from my lender I instead of using the $4,000 or so that I used before when we had that rebate from the real estate agent I said well I could pay about $10,000 as a discount and that improves my interest rate from you know somewhere in this six point eight seven five to six point seven five all the way down to six percent. So I bought down my interest rate for a thirty year loan for the entire duration of the loan. It's not a temporary buy down. This is a, a, a buy down for the entire loan. But I do that, and now my payment goes from 3120 dollars a month to two thousand eight hundred and forty eight dollars, an improvement of two hundred and seventy two dollars per month. Now before. If I had done the work, I would have had more equity. But what does equity do for me? If I'm keeping the property long-term to buy and hold, it doesn't really help me at all, right? It does improve that cash flow because I bought it for $30,000 less. But instead of taking that $10,000 to capture $20,000 in equity, I took the $10,000 and I've now improved my cash flow by $272 a month instead of about $180 a month. So it's you know, almost $100 more improved cash flow by doing it this way. And you bought a pretty house. You didn't need to do any work. I don't know. Seems like it's something to consider. So talk to your lender about buying down the interest rate and how much it would cost and run the math and say, is this worthwhile doing? All right. Let's talk about some creative financing stuff. So I've looped, I've kind of grouped all these together because you could search for properties that are owner financing or search for properties that you could take over a loan or search for properties where, you know, you could lease option it if you really want to get creative or wrap financing or subject to or agreement for deed or bond for deed and installment land contract or all those different things. What I've basically done is I've grouped them all together and said, look, you can search for properties where you're able to get non-traditional financing. You don't have to go to a mortgage broker anymore and do all this. So I'm going to just very briefly, because this is not intended to be a class in creative financing. I'll very briefly run through what the differences are between these. And so you understand them and, and that way you'll understand it. And then I'll kind of like make like one or two comments just on these in the terms of using this as a strategy. Okay. So owner financing is when a seller owns a property free and clear, they do not have a mortgage on it. And you go to them and say, I'd like to buy your property, but I would like you to act as the bank. I'd like you to deed me the property and I will actually make payments to the property for you. I make, make payments to the property um, to you as if you were the bank. And then once I made the payments, you release your, uh, your kind of deed of trust on the property, your security instrument, and then I own it free and clear. Okay, So that's the idea behind owner financing. Basically, the seller acts as the bank. With wrap financing, the seller is sort of acting as the bank, but they still have a loan in place. So you're going to go buy a $500,000 property, and they still owe $200,000 on that. But the lender, the the seller says to you, okay, I'll tell you what. You make me a payment as if you're buying it for $500,000. I'll take part of what you pay me. I will pay the underlying loan of $200,000 that I still have, and I will keep the difference. So that's wrap finance. You're wrapping an existing loan that already exists on the property. Okay? Uh, Loan assumption. There are certain loans that are assumable, FHA loans, VA loans, as two examples, where you could go in there, and it's usually as an owner-occupant, but you go in there and you formally go to the bank and say, I would like to qualify and formally assume all responsibilities for this loan. And by doing that, you're able to capture these really low interest rates we had over the last five years or so. So you can go find an FHA loan at 3.5% or 3% and buy it instead of getting a new loan at 6.5%. Okay, so the idea is you can go get these really attractive loans that are already out there and take them over by formally assuming them. And it could be a significant way for you to improve cash flow. We'll talk about a little downside to that here in a second. You can go in there and find a rent to own program. Let me take another sip here. You can go find a landlord who's tired of being a landlord and say, look, I'd like to rent the property, but I would like the ultimately the, the ability to own this at some point in the future. I'd like an option to buy the property a year or two or three or five down the road, or I would like a purchase contract to be able to buy the property that is a year or two or three or four or five down the road that I could use to buy the property from you. So I'm going to rent it from you for a period of time, and then I'm eventually going to buy it. And you could do this if you're an owner-occupant, or you could do it if you're an investor who wants to then sublease the property to someone else. So that's the kind of rent to own, lease to own, lease option, lease purchase family. And then you have the agreement for deed, bond for deed, contract for deed, installment line contract. This is sort of like a car loan where you don't get ownership. You don't get title to the property until you fulfilled your obligation. But you have a contract in place that says, if you make these payments for this period of time, at the end of that period of time, I will then give you a deed for the property. So it's, it's a kind of a variation on owner financing that more protects the seller in a lot of ways because they don't give you ownership of the property until you've done what you agreed to with the, in the agreement, whatever that is, agreement for deed or bond for deed or contract for deed or installment line contract. And then finally, subject to is when a seller deeds you ownership of the property and they leave their existing loan in place. It's sort of like a subset or variation on wrap financing. With wrap financing, you're paying the seller. The seller is usually paying the underlying loan on the property. And you're kind of like part of the money goes to the seller, part of the money goes to the underlying loan. A lot of times with subject two, you're basically making an agreement with the seller where the, the loan is very high loan to value. You know, it's you're buying a $500,000 property and the loan is for $480,000. And the seller's like, look, I'm going to deed you the property. You just agree that you're going to make payments on this loan that's still in my name. And we're going to leave that loan in place. You're not formally assuming. You're not going to the lender and saying, I am uh, applying to formally assume all responsibilities for the, lo- for the loan. You're just saying, look, the seller is deeding you the property. You're now the owner. Deed means ownership. They're deeding you the property. Now you're making payments on the underlying loans uh, uh, that the seller has on there. And this, the loan is staying in the seller's name. Okay, so that's an overview of creative financing. And you can see why these might be more advantageous because, and there are probably exceptions to everything I'm about to say, but they tend to be more flexible in negotiating financing terms. If you go to a traditional mortgage broker and you start haggling with them over getting you a better interest rate, they're probably gonna say, no, this is the rate we got. This is it. No, there's no negotiating. Um, but if you go to a, a, an owner, they might be much more willing to say, hey, look, you know, interest rates right now are 6.5, uh, but I'm willing to you know do financing at 5% or, or 8%. I mean, it could go either way, right? So you could possibly negotiate improved interest rate and loan terms. Okay, You could say to them, you no, know, I'd like to pay you interest only for five years, and then I'll do an amortization schedule where I'm paying you a little bit more, including principal on the loan. You can do all that stuff with a seller if you're doing creative financing there. And then assumable loans. So you could formally assume a loan with a better interest rate than you could get now. That's really the appeal of it. These loans t- tend to be assumable, assumable for owner-occupants only. So you're like, James, I mean, I'm an investor. I'm trying to buy this property, as best property. Well, if you're trying to do like the nomad strategy where you're moving into a property, living there for a year and then converting it to rental or you're house hacking where you want to live in a duplex or a triplex or a fourplex or maybe a house that has an upstairs, downstairs and you kind of want to live in it upstairs and you want to rent out there, you know, owner occupants still can work for those situations. You can formally go in and assume a, you know, FHA loan. Um, or a VA loan because you could use FHA and VA in order to buy duplexes, triplexes or fourplexes or single family homes and you could go in there and buy a property like that and and be able to assume a loan like that. Now, you're taking over their current loan balance. So if they bought this property, you know, 5 years ago and uh, you know, property values were worth 400,000 5 years ago in your marketplace and now they're worth 500,000 and they paid down a little bit on the loan over the last 5 years, they may only owe, you know, 340 but the property's worth 500. So the trick is you can formally assume a $340,000 loan, but you still got to come up with that difference between what they're selling to you for, the, the $500,000 and the 340. So you need to come up with a lot more than three and a half percent down or 5% down. So you'd have to you have to formally come up with $160,000 as a down payment in order to be able to assume that loan, which makes this much more difficult to implement. Okay, um, so- Maybe you could structure it where you can get the seller to agree to some type of uh, owner financing. But a lot of times the lender will not want you to assume a loan with owner financing with a uh, seller uh, second mortgage in place either. So you want to talk to you about that. All right. So those are all the strategies to use when searching for properties. And optimizing cash flow is not something you only focus on after you own the property. A lot of people think, you no, know, I'll worry about optimizing cash flow after I bought the property. Well, you're eliminating some of your choices and options if you do it that way. There are things you can and maybe even should be thinking about when you're searching for properties to improve your overall cash flow. And better to take a more holistic approach and optimize at all the different various stages rather than just when you're trying to optimize for rent. So that's it. That's all I got. This has been James Orr. I hope you've enjoyed. We will do the other sections, the other kind of like um stages for improving cash flow in other mini classes. So stay tuned for those. Bye-bye for now. With home prices up, mortgage interest rates up, and rents up, but not quite enough to counteract the higher prices and interest rates. Cash flow on rental properties in Philadelphia is harder than ever. Book a call with the Real Estate Financial Planner to apply our proprietary 88 strategies to improve cash flow on your rentals. See the show notes See the show notes to schedule a call to discuss collaboration opportunities.